Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. It can be found on page 1022 in your pew Bible. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Good morning, everyone. Hey, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to see everybody this morning. The first thing that I want to do quickly this morning is to just acknowledge the extremely public and extremely senseless violence that took place this week at the Chiefs Parade on Wednesday. I want to, I want to offer our prayers and support to people who've been affected by this tragedy, tragedy, our, uh, our elders have colleagues who have been organizing efforts to care for the victims and the victims' families that are involved. Um, and we care about things like this, and we're praying that God would glorify himself somehow through this. We're praying that he would take what is meant for evil and turn it and use it for good. There are families even in this church who are connected to some of the victims, so please pray for healing for those families. Pray for hope. Pray for salvation to be birthed out of this, even though it looks meaningless because we know that nothing in this life is meaningless. Pray that at the end of the day, God would be seen, that God would be glorified, and also personally, let this public tragedy move you not to hopelessness and not to despair, but let it send you to Jesus. Let the evil of this situation cause you to remember that this world is a broken place. 
In fact, violence like this is happening somewhere all the time. There are churches all over the world dealing with violence and resistance to the gospel because this world has darkness in it. But take heart because Jesus shines into the darkness and he is not overcome by the darkness. In this world, we will encounter evil. In this world, we will encounter sin and wickedness and decay. In this world, we will encounter resistance. And in this, in this world, we will encounter the forces of real darkness. But family, in this world, we will have tribulation. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Remember that Jesus even prayed not that we be taken out of the world, but that we be protected. And when a tragedy like this strikes us or the people that we love, the church is not left scratching its head about what to do. The church knows who to turn to. The truth is that the church knows the only person who can do anything about it in the first place. And, in fact, he already has done something about it. God sits on his throne today, and he sat on his throne on Wednesday. And he does always. So let us reflect and feel the weight of this type of moment and run to him because blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Would you all bow your heads with me and pray before I move forward? Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that when we are knocked on our heels, you never are. Sovereign God of the universe. We look to you. We bow our hearts and submit our lives before you. You're not just all powerful, but you are perfectly good all the time. Would you help a tragedy like this bring out repentance in us? A tragedy like this, would you help it bring out the reality of our mortality and our weakness and our frailty? Would you let it operate the way it's supposed to? Would it fill us with compassion and cut us to the heart? Not just for this moment, but would it grow compassion in us and make us a more compassionate people? Would you be with us today? Would you transform us? Would you change us? Would you do surgery on our hearts this morning through your word for your glory and for our joy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This, this morning's text is riddled with details and explanations and instructions related to how we love one another. The emphasis is on loving people in the church. It's on loving our brothers, which is a reference to other believers in the household of God. It's a reference to the person sitting next to you this morning. 
John walks us through several dynamics in a short selection of verses that each warrant a sermon on their own. And there is, there is an evident kind of emphasis on love. So I want to walk through four movements this morning that help us get a hold of, to help us grasp a little bit tighter what it means for us to love one another. I want you to have a real grip on where, a grip on where in your life love for other people is a real challenge, a real difficulty. Where are you being unloving? I want us to be able to ask and answer the not easy question, what should love look like in my life? That's a hard question. We're not going to ask what should love look like in somebody else's life because that's an easy question. We all have lots of answers for that question. And I don't want us, I don't want us to understand what love is so that we can use this true picture of love to treat people in an unloving or judgmental way. I want us to get a grip on how we can love in a more biblical way. And I want us to get a grip on what that means for us in our life with the people that God has put right in front of us. I want us to get a real handhold about specific areas in our lives that we're avoiding or resisting real opportunities that are just dropped right in our laps to love other people. And I want us to be able to leave with some actionable ideas in our hearts and minds as we ask ourselves at the end of this sermon, at the end, at the end of this section of this message, what is love look like in my life? What is love doing in my life? And how should that change? Because friends, love does something. Now, now I also have, I also have real apprehension about preaching on love. And the reason that I have real apprehension about that is because I know, I know that a Preaching a sermon on love doesn't change anything. Doesn't change anything. And I also know that the Spirit of Christ changes everything. Everything. So we're gonna we're gonna walk through four movements this morning. We're gonna listen to or hear an instruction. We're going to understand a contrast. We're going to examine a quality. And we're going to receive a command. First, we're going to hear an instruction. This comes from verse 11, which says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, my main point about that sentence is not going to blow anybody's mind, but it should be said, and it should be said a lot. It should be said over and over and over and over again. Even in church, we should love people. We should love people. We should, we should love, and we should love people. That sentence could change our entire church, and that sentence is changing our church. That sentence, if we all grasped it a little bit deeper, would completely change the climate of this church. Now, I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence, but I'm going to start with really basic concepts this morning. 
I'm going to emphasize some fundamentals. Here, John opens with, we should. We should. One of the perennial debates raging in the world right now is around who gets to use that word in my life. Who gets to say that to me? This isn't a joke. This morning, ask yourself, who gets to use the word should with you? Who have you given authority or permission in your life to say you should? Because John right here is not merely describing a kind of list of potential options that we can pick from. He's saying that we should do one thing and we should not do the opposite. So we need the reminder this morning that God always, God always gets to use this word in our lives. If we're honest, and if we're honest, that bugs us. We don't like to be told that we should do anything by anybody. We definitely don't like being around people who we think use that word too much. And we all know people, we all know people who like to give advice, but don't demonstrate that they're able to follow advice. But the fact is is that that is never the case with God, and it's never the case with God's word. John's not giving advice here. He's saying what we ought to be doing. He's telling us what is a moral imperative as Christians. This is evident both by universal reality and by our confession as Christians. We're not in charge of our lives. God is. And we're not in charge of our own opinions. God is. And we're not even in charge of what we love. God is. And he can command even our loves to obey him. Christians have duties and moral directives, and we do not get to pick and choose what we listen to or what we don't listen to, like we're at a salad bar. Some of us need to hear again, even this morning, that there's real pain in your life or real destruction in your life or real grief in your life right now because God is saying you should do one thing and you are saying no thanks. It doesn't change when you become a Christian. When human beings do not listen to God, things do not go well for them. But not only should we do something, we should do something specific. We should love. Now, this word demands some definition because everybody uses it differently, and there there are lots of places in the Bible where we could go to learn about what the Bible means when it talks about love, but I'm just going to go through a short list from 1 Corinthians 13. If we're hearing an instruction that we should love, then we should care about how the Bible describes and defines love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient. And love is kind. Love does not envy. Love doesn't boast. Love isn't arrogant. And love's not rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love isn't irritable. Love isn't resentful. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing because it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. 
Love hopes all things, and love endures all things. Love never ends. So that's, that's just a short list to keep us busy for a long lifetime. Intuitively, intuitively, we all also know what it means to love because we love all kinds of things in our lives already. We love money. We love pizza. We love vacation. We love freedom. We love the chiefs. We love our homes. We love our pets. We love all kinds of things. We are consumed with daydreams about vacations or dream homes or what colleges our kids are going to go to. We know what it means to be devoted to something. We know what it means to treasure something. We know what it means already, what it is to sacrifice for the sake of something that we long for and desire and love. Love is our devotion to someone or something. Love is being won by something. Love is being enthralled by something. Love is being entranced by something. So it, it isn't necessarily wrong if we say that we love pizza, but if we mean we love pizza the most, then there's definitely something wrong. Love is being distracted by something that preoccupies your attention. Love Love is that kind of attentive, devoted posture. And love is also some other things. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love isn't brittle. Love's not fragile and it isn't prideful. So love is defined by enduring and lasting and a kind of sturdiness and resilience. But love is also defined as humble and lowly and not full of pride. This is how the great commandment works. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let the most fundamental orientation in your life, the most foundational orientation in your life, be to love God. Let your primary devotion be to Jesus. Let your primary preoccupation with this life to be honoring God with everything that he's given you, and then you will be patient in a unique way. You'll see the fruit of kindness in your life. This is, this is how love works. So we see today that we should. There's an ought to our lives. God gives us real instructions on what to do. We should love. This is, this is an imperative. It isn't a suggestion. And there's a direct object. We should love people, not just things, not just stuff, not just our pets. Not our phones or our careers or our families. We should love one another, the family of God. And if you're having trouble loving your brothers and sisters or your spouse or your friends this morning, then there's an invitation here for us. You should start with you and God, not you and them. You should start between you and God, not you and them. And this takes me to my second movement, which is to understand a contrast. Verse 12 says, we should not be like Cain. So we should love one another. We should love brothers and sisters in Christ. We should love the person in the city next to us. That's one way that we should be. The way we should not be is don't be like Cain. 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. This reference to Cain and Abel comes from Genesis chapter 4. So I'm going to turn there and read from Genesis chapter 4 quickly. If you want to turn there with me, you can. It's in the black Bible in your pew on page 3 or 4. Guaranteed. This is the story of Cain and Abel, and I'm just going to read a few verses so we understand what the author of 1 John is talking about. Genesis 4, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against him and killed him. Cain, Cain brought an offering to God. And Abel brought an offering to God. And we don't know a lot about what made one offering acceptable and what made the other offering unacceptable. But we are told in Hebrews chapter 11 that it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain did, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Cain's issue, Cain's issue in this story is with God, not with his brother Abel. Our issues with other people in our lives, much of the time are most fundamentally our issues with God and not with those other people in our lives. Cain was angry, the book of Genesis tells us, and his anger boiled into an envious, jealous rage. His issue with his brother was envy. Abel didn't do anything wrong, but envy is a sin that bubbles out of our anger with God, not man. Envy looks, envy looks right at the judge of all the earth and then points a finger in his face and says, you're doing it wrong. Envy looks at the goodness of God and says, if I was in charge, I would do a better job than you. Envy hates God's blessings, but only when those blessings are in somebody else's hands. And envy hates them because they're in somebody else's hands. In James chapter 4, he says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. How we treat other people is a direct result of how we view God. How you treat your spouse 
And how you treat your family, how you treat your friends and members of this church has way more to do with you and God than it does with you and them. It's not a sin for God to be jealous for his own glory. That's right and good. But our jealousy isn't concerned with God's glory. It's concerned with our own glory. It's a sin because it's a fierce and faithless protection of our own little kingdoms. What we own, what we think we deserve, what we think are our rights. And when God gives somebody what we think we deserve, we hate God for that. And then we hate the other person also. That's what Cain did here. Cain couldn't stand for God to bless his brother and not bless him. Cain hated the righteous posture of his brother. He envied and he slaughtered him. This word is not gentle. This word is a violent word. Cain didn't poison Abel in his sleep so he could go away peacefully. In a blood rage, he violently slaughtered him. So we need to understand this morning, take this opportunity to understand this morning that if we battle with envy and jealousy, our battle is with the character of God himself. That's the sin in our hearts in that moment. We believe he owes us something. And then we believe that we're justified in holding that view. Cain killed his brother because of his own issues with God. And so, so do we. We kill because we're angry at God. We kill something, something. We might not literally commit homicide, but when you're angry at God, when you are bitter at God, when you are resentful and stewing and seething against God, when you're convinced that he owes you something or that you deserve something different than what you have, when that happens in your heart, something's going to die. Always. Your relationship with your children might be strained. Your marriage might just be wasting away. Your friendships in your life might be devolving into just shallow niceties because people don't want to engage that deeper, dark attitude that you're carrying with you. Even if it's just your own joy or your own gratitude or your own contentment, something always dies. Next, the author brings us face to face with a challenge, with a challenge. We should love people. We shouldn't be like Cain, centered on ourselves, defending and fighting and wanting, wanting God to give us what we believe we're owed. John's given us marching orders so far. We should love other people. And he's shown us this negative example about what not to do. You shouldn't hate or envy or murder other people. And now the apostle goes on to affirm Christian love. He has a heart, a loving posture towards these folks in this letter. And he wants to affirm and encourage them. And he raises the stakes for his readers. So starting in verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life inside him, abiding in him. 
By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So first, if, you're, if you love in general, if you love other Christians, that's a good thing. That is a good sign for you. It's okay for the affection and devotion and love that you have for other people, other believers, other friends of yours. It's good for you to see the love that you have for them, and it is okay for it to give you assurance that you pass from death to life. It's good and natural for that love to function as assurance that you have passed from darkness into light. That's a good thing. But the apostle also wants to present a challenge to us as well. The quality of Christian love should not only be in word or talk, but in actions, in deed, and in truth. He says, if you see someone in need, but close your heart to him, how can you say that you love them? And this is one of our challenges, just one of our challenges this morning. We're challenged to love each other, not merely in what we say, and not merely in what we do. Because the requirement here is that we love in truth and hypocrisy isn't true. Flattery isn't true. Doing acts of kindness that might look like love to somebody else, but we're really just doing it for ourselves, isn't true. One author sums it up succinctly when he says, quote, words can be empty and actions can be hypocritical. God's after our hearts this morning and it isn't merely what we do, it's also why we're doing it. John Stott summarizes where we are in the text in a powerful way when he says this, quote, hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain it originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Our greatest need, your greatest need is met in the greatest sacrifice that ever happened. When it comes to your life, you can't fathom all that God has already given you in Christ. Christ did not love in word or talk, but he loved in deed and he loved in truth. Christ loved us when we were his enemies. Christ loved us when we hated him. And it's only through the life of Christ, and it's only through the death of Christ, it's only through the resurrection of Christ that loving other people in deed and in truth is even possible for you at all. Christ's work is what gives you his spirit so that you can live this way. You aren't loving enough 
on your own. You can't just try harder to do this. You aren't smart enough to figure it out. You need the power of the Holy Spirit moving in you and moving through you. You need God's power to live and God's power to love this way. There's no, there's no price that you, can, that you will have to pay in the service of love that God will not make up for a million times over. There's no cost to loving other people that God can't cover. There's no sacrifice that you can make that God's sacrifice won't overshadow. You can't do too much. You can't love too much. We have a saying in our home that helps our hearts be generous, and it's, it's you can't outgive God. Right? When you're thinking about how much should we give, you can't outgive God. You're not going to give your money or your time or your stuff away and surprise Him. You're not going to give your love or your very life away and surprise God. He's never going to look at you and say, That's a dumb investment. You can't give so much love that God can't refill. You can't give so much love that God can't replace. Pour love out like a cup because it's a cup that God never lets run dry. It's in his strength and in his power because he's eager and jealous to get all the glory. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 12, it says this. Jesus is watching something happen. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in big amounts of money and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. You can give love away like that. Love people that way. With the only two pennies that you have left by the power of God's spirit. Human beings have never had a more carefree or a more comfortable or a more leisurely existence than what we have available to us in the West. Never never in the history of the world. And I'm not complaining about that. I'm not murmuring about that. I'm grateful for those blessings, the gifts in my life. I want to be thankful and have a heart posture of humility there. And one of the ways that we get to enjoy those things is by giving them away. But our impulse is to to hoard them or to fiercely protect what we have instead of seeing it all as God's. Instead of seeing everything that we have as an opportunity to love other people in our lives. Most of us live in the suburbs of Kansas. We're not in need the way this widow was in need. And some of us have, some, some of us have experienced severe poverty, but, but most of us haven't. Most of us have not. And we have, we have more than we need, and we, myself included, we budget for more than we already have. And then we budget our time and we budget our emotions and we budget our me time like God doesn't know what's going on in our lives. Like he really has left it all up to us to take care of ourselves and provide for ourselves and not mess everything up. But if you invest 
Whatever you have to invest, whatever ways God has gifted you for the sake of loving other people, the returns on your investment are going to be ridiculous. Ridiculous. If you invest whatever God has given you in loving other people, the returns on that are going to be embarrassing. They're so big. If you invest all of your money or time or gifts in the service of love, you will not be sorry. If you wring out your life to love others, you'll never regret it. You'll never be sorry in love, in deed, and in truth. That's the, the quality, the nature of Christian love. You can't outgive God. You can't outlove God. He's not worried that you're going to run out of love to give to other people. One theologian notes this helpful progression when he says, there can be no obedience of God's commands if there's no love for one another. There can be no love for one another if people close their hearts to those in need. And there can be no confidence when approaching God in prayer when people close their hearts to fellow believers in need. So our section ends and it, it reiterates the command that we heard at the beginning. I want us to receive that command and think about it, engage our imagination in our lives about where it applies, where it applies to our relationships before we leave this morning. Starting in verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Jesus' name in verse 23 is synonymous with him. And so... I want, to bring, I want to bring everything full circle as I move to close this morning and ask the question again that I asked at the beginning. I want us to ask, what does love look like in my life? What's it do? And how does that need to change? Because the truth is that maybe, maybe it needs to change. Maybe you find yourself striving and clutching for your money or your friends or your family or the, the gifts that God's given you. Maybe you find yourself striving or clutching the leisure that your stuff affords you. Or maybe you're defensive. Maybe you're protective, overly protective of your time or you shield your life from people in need because you don't want to deal with it. Man, I want us to assess our hearts this morning. I want us to take the opportunity to assess our hearts. And I also want us to keep in mind that John is not suggesting that we wallow or get lost trying to nail down every single motive in our lives. I'm not trying to bog anybody down. As I even thought about this text this morning, I was so encouraged by John's um, words where he says, if your heart condemn, condemns you, God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. So I, I, want us, I want us to soberly make a conscientious effort to listen to what God's saying in this text, and then remember, if our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And this is the big thing that I want us to take away from that short reality, that short text, is this. God's, 
God's omniscience, the fact that God knows everything for the Christian should be a source of comfort and not a source of terror. Not a source of terror. And if that stings in some way this morning, man, go to Jesus. Go to him and not away from him. But we have to ask ourselves today, where is love in my life doing stuff? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. It doesn't insist on getting its own way. And love bends. It gives way to other people's preferences. It's not arrogant, but it's humble. It isn't weak and flimsy. Love is durable and strong and can withstand the storms of life. Love isn't sitting in a posture of self-defense. It isn't scrambling about who's going to take care of you. It isn't self-protective because it doesn't have to be because Christian love is from faith. Like Abel's sacrifice was from faith and the widow's obedience was from faith. And that faith in your life is a gift to you. Take hold of it. In our lives, we don't love other people all the time. Often we don't love other people, myself included, because we think nothing's going to change. Or we withhold our love from other people because we think they don't get it. Or we withhold our love from other people who've hurt us because we think that they're never going to realize what we're doing for them. They're never going to understand just, just how much it costs for me to love them in those moments. And the truth is, is that you might be right. That's true. They might never, ever get it. They might never know how much it costs you to love them. It costs God, his son's life to love us. And we take that for granted every day. Maybe somebody takes your love for granted. And that wouldn't surprise me. We do the same thing all the time. We treat the death of Christ, something that is so unique and perfect and powerful, we treat it as common, or even worse, we treat it like it was something that we were owed. So as you leave today, think about what your love is doing in your life. Remember that Christians live this life of obedience by faith, only by faith and always by faith. The way for you to love people is to love them by faith. Love the hardest people in your life by faith. Love the people who don't deserve it by faith. Love the people in your life that you can't stand. Love the people in this church that you can't stand by faith. The church is a messy place because we are messy people. It takes faith to love us. The effort that isn't from faith makes it about us, but loving by faith keeps all the glory in the right direction aimed at God. There's no price. There isn't any amount of love that you can give that God can't restore tenfold and on the day that you stand in front of him. There's no cost too high. You can't outgive or outlove him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, would you help us this morning? Would you help us worry way less about our needs and way more about what we can give away? Our, our very lives. Would you bring to mind people in our lives that need love? Would you connect that to our hands and feet? Would we be moved, not only in our emotions or our affections, but would we be moved in our actions? Would you increase our faith? Would you increase our devotion, our love, our experience of your love? Would you increase that reality for us so that it would spill out and spill into the pew to the person that's next to me, the person that's down the street from me? Would you increase our faith so we're not always worried that we're going to run out of something? Would you cut us free from the anxiety of running out? Make us wise, make us diligent, and make us zealous for love and good works. Zealous to love one another in this place, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.